You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. We're going to talk with former Senator Kelly Leffler, who is the uh, uh, creator and um, just idea maker behind Greater Georgia, who's done such great work throughout the state, getting people out to vote, engaging with groups of people who typically have not heard conservative ideas and spreading this message of why our ideas work better. No one's done it better than her. And no one understands business better than Kelly Leffler does. And she's joining me right now. And thank you so much, Kelly, for giving me some time today. Good morning, Martha. Great to be with y'all. Thank you. So let's talk, first of all, just kind of about a couple of things related to the federal government. We've got the debt ceiling talks, which looks like they're going to happen now. I mean, the Republicans did what nobody thought they could do, and a lot of Republicans thought they couldn't do it. They wove together a majority on the House side. The president and and, and Leader Schumer kept saying, show us your plan, show us your plan. They didn't think that McCarthy could put a plan together that he wouldn't lose five votes and couldn't get passed. Well, he he was able to put a plan together. It may not be a perfect plan, but he was able to keep his caucus together. And now the Democrats are scrambling and say they're going to come to the table. Well, you point out something that is really amazing, considering that it took 15 tries for Speaker McCarthy to become Speaker, he put together this plan in record time to save $4.5 trillion of taxpayer dollars over 10 years in the Limit, Save, and Grow Act, Martha. And Biden won't take the win. He got the debt ceiling increase, but now he's trying to provoke a crisis. Okay? And it's he is on record in the past of saying we can't have brinksmanship and now he won't meet with McCarthy. So he is now saying as you know, on May 9th, he will meet. Um, They haven't met since February, however, and keep in mind on May 9th, Congress only has 15 days left in session uh, until June one, which is the, what's called the X date that treasury secretary Yellen has said that the U S could default on our debt. Now, we have never done it. We can never do it. Uh, this is the, the really one of the foundations of our country. Back in 1790, uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, I mean, they all came together and said, we're going to be the best uh, source of, uh, we're going to be the best debtor in the world. We're going to make this um, a, the strongest country. So we, we don't need to even walk up to that line. We did it. Uh, 12 years ago when Obama was president and um, that debt ceiling was only 14 trillion and now we're at 31.4 trillion that's a 125 percent increase in debt we have to have uh, reined in spending because it's out of control I saw it firsthand when I was in Washington we have probably upwards of a trillion dollars of unspent COVID funds um biden has tried to create a new army of irs agents that you know 80 billion is allocated now but in the next few years that'll cost 200 billion he's passed the green new deal tax credits that's 
crony capitalism at its worst and distorts the market and wastes taxpayer money. Um, and then the student loan forgiveness. I mean, well over um, half the country does not have a student loan or college degree, but taxpayers are now supposed to pay for PhDs, um, college degrees. So um, we've really got to get back to the foundations of this country and, and not spending more than we raise. And look, the economy is slowing down. The GDP number was a surprise. Uh, the slow GDP number in the first quarter, that means jobs, job creation, job opportunity, pay is going to go down. And frankly, the Fed tomorrow is going to make sure it goes down when they raise rates again and make student loans, car loans, credit card payments more expensive. So this is a runaway train that, that Biden is really gambling with uh, in the name of politics. Well, and what this plan does, and you're right, the administration just won't take a win. We have never done what he says he wants, which is a clean debt ceiling deal. It's always been with other things when we've done this. And so what McCarthy did, and I got to tell you, I wasn't the biggest Kevin McCarthy fan, okay? But he was able to cobble this deal together, and it's pretty good. It cuts federal spending. It it gets rid, as you noted, this $20,000 unfair student loan forgiveness when really only 22% of Americans, uh, you know, have student loans. And, and it's unfair for those of us that want didn't get, you know, saved and sacrificed so their kids wouldn't have student loans, two paid back student loans. It's not fair to all those people, so it makes sense. The IRS funding is in there, the rescinding of that. Work requirements to safety net programs. We have a labor shortage right now to require people who are able to work for the benefits they get is is not a bad thing some of these green energy tax credits and then the big one as you mentioned was the about trillion dollars worth of covid funds that have not been spent yet and uh you know your former colleague Rand paul which has this plan where if what we ought to do is go back to 2019 spending and then build back from there i think that's a reasonable plan too but this is a reasonable plan in any other world than the bizarre world the democrats live in right now this would be a win well and exactly right and look at the other implementation that they're suggesting in the um act which is unleashing u.s energy production that was part of hr1 the house's first bill that they introduced in this legislative session if you think about what it could save for each American family, about $800 a year in energy costs to allow us to drill for oil, to produce natural gas, to get back to a normal situation in this country of being energy independent and hopefully energy dominant in a world of increasing risks, uh, not just with Russia and Ukraine, um, you know, but China, um, some of the things happening around the world that we're not even faced with but could be confronted with very soon so i think you know we'll see if that can stay in there but i just think we're overlooking this very uh important aspect of the u.s economy which is energy it would grow the tax base it would grow jobs it would bring more revenue into treasury um it would grow gdp and we just don't talk about it enough because i worry that this climate pulp is getting normalized in this country and this is a country that is driven by fossil fuels. We're the cleanest producer and user of fossil fuels. And we absolutely can find ways of having clean energy. But we're doing it at the cost of hardworking families. 
So yesterday, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, uh, made this claim that illegal immigration is down 90 percent since President Biden took office. I think that's probably next to if you want to keep your doctor, you can, that Obama said back in, in 2008. That is the biggest lie that I've ever heard from the podium of the White House of the United States of America. Well, everyone just knows it's, that what comes out of that podium. I mean, she is the liar in chief. Um, she is full. She is full propaganda mode. And in this country, the immigration crisis we're having right now is not only creating the crisis that we're heading into from a fiscal policy, because now the Biden administration is giving free health care, free housing, uh, free education, all these. Um, giveaways and not taking care of the American people who have real needs, real challenges. Um, and it's infuriating uh, Americans, Georgians, people that I talk to, and, and they say, why is this happening? Um, look, I know that they want to build their electorate. This is a very dangerous way to try to build the Democrat electorate. So um, hopefully we will hold them accountable in 24. That's why my organization is active every single year outside an election year and in an election year to remind people of the consequences of the people that we elect to office. You know, and and I think that the I'm glad you mentioned Greater Georgia and I'm glad you mentioned 2024 because, you know, I've been there's been a, a number of stories about how young people in their 20s are going back to God, that they've gone from pre-pandemic being um, like less than 25% of people going to church to they're in the 30s and growing. We've had huge gatherings in uh, Ashbury, in Oklahoma, in places around. And you're seeing this sort of movement kind of like we saw in the beginning of the 80s. I know you're too young to remember this, but in the beginning I'm of not. the 80s where you had this this um, this kind of silent majority, you know, the people, the regular people that are out there going to work every day. I, I am feeling encouraged that there are some signs to say people have had enough. They've had enough of being lied to with things that they know are lies. Well, absolutely. This secular religion that the government is trying to replace, uh, you know, put the, the loyalty to government over God is really badly misguided. It's going off the rails. It's not serving anyone. And what's encouraging is that young people are seeing this, as you said, in the early 80s. I mean, this is the awakening that the country needs. And we have to remember, this country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, one nation under God. And we have an administration that wants to take God out of everything. Uh, You can't have a Bible in school, but the teachers unions want to advance pornography in schools. So we really have to take a hard look at the morality and the impacts of the decisions we're having. Uh, and and what it's doing to this country. Um, And we're going to continue to have these so-called culture wars because, first of all, culture is really important. Morality is important. Um, And it really underlines the kind of not just the rule of law, but the principles in which this country was founded. Absolutely. Kelly Leffler, tell us what you're doing at Greater Georgia right now. So last week, we held the first annual Greater Georgia Awards, Legislative Awards Ceremony. It was a fun reception. 
um, not in a ballroom. What we wanted to do was get legislators together, honor their work. We had Governor Kemp, First Lady Marty Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, uh, Speaker Pro Tem, uh, President Pro Tem, and and the legislators that, that won awards for their hard work. I mean, think about, we're, okay, so we're in 23. There's no election this year. But how do we connect voters with the results that legislators got for them this session that they elected back in November of 22. So we wanted to highlight their work on crime. For example, uh, going after gang activity, which we know is on the rise here in Georgia. We wanted to recognize their work for holding DAs accountable, for returning a billion dollars in taxpayer dollars uh, to hardworking Georgians. And so we really are making sure that the issues are well understood by our electorate. And then we're out registering voters. You may have seen us up at Gainesville High School, uh, High School last weekend. Uh, great to be with the kids there. We were at uh, UGA registering voters. We've got, we're doing more and more with young voters, Hispanic voters. Um, we had a great Black Leaders Roundtable. So we're just staying really active to remind people the importance of conservative values, American principles, and why they need to be engaged. Kelly Leffler, if people want to know more about Greater Georgia, how can they get information? Well, just go to our website. I'd love for you all to sign up for our newsletter, greatergeorgia.com. You can sign up to volunteer. Uh, we get kind of ramped up starting at, you know, at the end of this summer, we'll be getting ready for next year's um, primary election and then elections So uh, in November of 24. So greatergeorgia.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Kelly Leffler, thank you so much for being with us today. Have a great rest of the week. You too. Thanks, Martha. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Will Marshall is joining me right now, and Will is the president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute, and he recently wrote a column for The Hill called uh, Democrats Need a Post-Populist Economics, and I uh, wanted to have him on because we like to have full discussion. Uh, we are, um, you know, the most conservative district in the country, but we like to have discussion on all sides of the issue. Will Marshall, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Martha. Thank you. So first of all, tell us what Progressive Policy Institute is. Sure. Uh, we're a, a think tank uh, that's been in business for about 30 years in Washington, kind of center-left. We cut. Our, we earned our spurs working for uh, Bill Clinton, really, back when he was rising up and throughout his two, two terms as president. So, uh, Yeah, I hear a little know. bit of a southern accent there. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> That's true. I'm from uh, Tidewater, Virginia, the uh, Chesapeake Bay area yes, is where, yes. I, where I come from. So um, what is a po- what is post-populist economics? Well, my, my uh, point there is that since about 2010, you know, with the Great Recession and the, the near meltdown of the financial system, there's been a kind of pall of pessimism that's been hanging over the the whole political class and everybody's you know kind of uh, 
saying that the system is rigged and that uh, workers have been victimized by this, that, and the other. Uh, and then there's some truth in these accounts. They're not all fiction. But 10 years, or now 13 years, is a long time to be in a state of clinical depression about the United States economy. You know, the usual default setting for Americans is optimism. And I'm arguing that we ought to regain our sense of economic uh, optimism and buoyancy and hope uh, that our economy is doing well. The Economist magazine recently had a, a, a thing that's kind of a, a panegyric to the American economy and how resilient it is. And to start emphasizing what new technologies, what innovation can bring us, you know, and, and stop dwelling on victimhood and grievance. Uh, and so, you know, I use the example on the Democratic side, and I think this is a bipartisan problem, not just a Democratic problem, but I use the example of this kind of attack on the tech companies, which seems to be failing and subsiding. You know, where we want to beat up on the private sector rather than extolling its creativity and ability to innovate and make our lives better. You know, it's funny because you said you started about 30 years ago, and I think we could all agree in this group. I know, think we could all agree that the term progressive means a different thing than it did 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and the term conservative and liberal do too. I mean, I talk about the inauguration speech of John Kennedy all the time because mm-hmm. It's worn very well historically, even though he didn't have enough time to implement many of the things he talked about. But he was uh, Bill Clinton was kind of a capitalist Democrat. OK, so I'm going to give him that. But uh, but but John Kennedy talked about strengthening our hemisphere, focusing more on being strong where we, you know, basically in our own neighborhood first and mm-hmm. then going out through the rest of the world. And. It's wearing very well. I mean, he certainly was, uh, I think by today's standards, he would have been a conservative. But he was a conservative Democrat. Uh, he There were a lot of the questions that we deal with today that weren't even on the radar then. So it's, it's a little different to com- difficult to compare. But when you look at what he accomplished um, and then what he couldn't accomplish, what he talked about, uh, it was, you know, he was right. He was right about the direction we should be going in. Well, Jack Kennedy was a hero of mine. So I agree with you. And but you know what he did was to look to the future with excitement, right? To challenge the country to beat the Russians in the space race, which we were behind in when he took office, and which we surged ahead in over the '60s. And it's that spirit, you know. And and today, I think we have an analog in, in this competition with China. I'm not saying a Cold War, but I'm saying a a competition for economic and technological leadership in the world that President Biden's talked about. He's right about that. And I think we ought to, I think we could win that competition and we ought to be, you know, uh, uh, driving all our policies through the prism of how we are successful in that competition. And it's forward looking. You know, it's not dwelling on the, you know, uh, on the failures of the past or the supposed uh, failure of capitalism. It says, well, we got to reinvent the system and make it robust and dynamic again to keep this country moving forward. You know, and you're right about that and what, and to use an example, you know, that that I get frustrated about. And if this sounds partisan, I apologize, okay? Um, but, you know, we we cannot change the past, okay? Rehash it. All you can do is learn from the past, right? So there's a lot of, you know, flailing around about, you know, racism and all of the things that have happened. And look, I, I lived through desegregation of high schools. I've I've lived through all of that stuff. I've worked against racism throughout my career and my life. All of that. 
So let's set that aside. Today, we have 21st century slavery in the human trafficking problem that's going on in America today, in the problem with child labor going on in America today. And and while I'm not saying it's all President Biden's fault for his open border policy, but he's not helping the situation. And for a, a reasonable group of people, and I'm sure there's Democrats and Republicans. I had a panel of black pastors in here last week that are were mostly Democrat that said we have to shut the border down because in our communities, meaning in their churches, they are seeing fentanyl overdoses, they are seeing sex trafficking and human trafficking, and they're seeing it in their community, and they say it needs to stop. So what I think is we're focusing so much on things we can't fix that we are missing the opportunities to really make a difference in the world. Well, you know, and uh, I want to say in Biden's defense, uh, you know, he's actually doing a lot on the border, and there's a lot of propaganda to the contrary, but he, uh, in his budget, has got a proposal for $25 billion increase in border enforcement. I mean, big money, serious money. And he's now getting attacked by the left. You know, uh, they're, they're, they're accusing him of Trump's policies, you know, which is also not fair. Uh, but, you know, just because he's, he's trying to cut down on the flow of uh, illegal immigration into the country and to create uh, better legal pathways for people, uh, you know, sort of say if, if, if you come in illegally, you go to the back of the line. And, and, uh, and so don't do you know, that. I don't, I don't disagree with that in theory, but you can't deny by the Border Patrol's own numbers that six and a half million people have come across the border in the last three years that they know about. Okay, that have come across illegally. Okay, so the numbers just don't bear it out. Okay, and I I understand. I think I think there are they have this year. Okay, Mm -hmm. but the first two years they didn't. And I think the two things. I mean, I just think it was a mistake. I know that they had this whole. Trump is bad, so we have to reverse everything he did. But there were a couple of things he did really well, and and they reversed it, like securing the border. Well, what I'm saying is that he's uh, taken a lot of uh, you know incoming from uh, you know the two uh, the two people who are for open borders. He's not. He never has been. Uh, and we do want a more, Democrats do want a lot more humane, less cruel policy, frankly, than the Trump policy. But Biden has taken steps and he's getting a lot of <laughs> blowback. So it would be good if somebody, a Republican, said, okay, this is encouraging. Let's, let's, let's work together to move, continue to move the dial in this direction. I, do, I think what's hard about that. Because he is not an open that, border advocate. I think, and, I just, I'll, Will, I got to be very honest with you, okay? okay? The Joe Biden that I met in 08 is not the Joe Biden that I see today as far as the policies he's taking, as far as how he's approaching issues. I mean, I, I met and interviewed Joe Biden in 08, and he was, and if you look at what he had to say over the years, he was, I was hoping he was going to be the Alka-Seltzer for this kind of mess we were in, Okay. Um, I've been very disappointed, but the thing is, Will, and I know you live in Democratic circle, circles, there's a lot of Democrats that are disappointed, too. 
Well, look, I mean, we, we represent what I'll call the pragmatic wing of the Democratic yes. Party, not the left wing. And we're often in a state of, uh, I wouldn't say conflict, but, you know, competition for, you know, uh, leadership on policy and on politics. And where we focus on is uh, the challenge of expanding the party coalition and winning back a lot of voters who have abandoned us, including working class voters that have gone over to the, uh, the other side. And so... So I know the critiques, and uh, I've dealt with them for decades, really. Uh, and they're not all wrong, but I'm just saying one has to be careful to differentiate Biden from one's uh, view of uh, other Democrats. And sometimes- no, and I hear you well about that 100%. And I tell you, I have loved this conversation, and more of us need to have these kinds of conversations. And I think that's what you're saying from what I've looked at from your group, mm-hmm. that you want to have these kinds of conversations. Well, we've always uh, been able to have them with moderate Republicans. To be honest with you, there aren't enough of them around anymore. Well, that's the uh, way we least, feel about moderate Democrats. Not, <laughs> <laughs> at least not in Washington. Maybe maybe they exist <laughs> elsewhere, but they look like a vanishing species from this perspective. But now, but we've had a you know look. We we want to get things done, get back to governing, and get back away from this negative partisanship, which really paralyzes government. You know, I just got back from uh, Australia. And they got a functioning democracy down there. They just do things better and differently and get things done. And that, you know, we used to, and we got to get back to that. Oh, I don't disagree with you about that. What we need to do, Will, is the next time I'm actually taking a group of people to Washington, D.C. next spring to kind of see how mm. things work. We should we should meet there and get some moderate Democrats and Republicans together and see what we can come Absolutely. up with. Absolutely. We're game. Always game for that. Sounds good. Will Marshall, thanks so much for being with us today. And it is, tell people how they can get more information about your group. Yeah, we're Progressive Policy Institute, PPIOnline.org. You can get all the, all the PPI, you know, uh, 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 verse and, and scripture that you need. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we welcome people to go there. But, uh, I appreciate your, uh, your opportunity, the opportunity to speak with you, Martha. That's, and, you know, we- and we will talk again. Thank you so much, Will. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. We're going to continue our discussion about violence in America, uh, how it relates to border security, how it relates to our cities. And joining me right now is Gabriel Nadalis. Uh, he's the National Director of Our America, and he had a column last week uh, in uh, Newsweek said, punish criminals and support police to protect minority communities. Uh, Gabe, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So tell folks a little bit about you first, because I think you have a very interesting story and in how you got to the positions that you hold today. Sure. I mean, you know, I've been politically active since like 2006, when I was in sixth grade. And back then it was, I started off with just immigration things, you know, myself being an immigrant. And uh, there was a lot of uh, chatter about immigration back in 2006 during the Bush era, pretty much. Um, And, you know, I, I started getting involved and I was involved in a lot of liberal causes for several years. But in 2011, I started doing a little bit more radical activism, quote unquote activism, when I was part of the Antifa movement. And, you know, uh, it's interesting because a lot of people, when I tell them, yeah, I used to be part of Antifa, you know, I, people think I did it like 2019, 2020. No, this Antifa is a much, much older uh, movement than people realize. But back in 2011, they were virtually unknown by most people. And, you know, I did my thing. I, I, I can't really say much about that except for the fact that 
I thought that I was fighting for something good, but I wasn't. And in 2012, I realized that I was I was wrong. And slowly and surely, I started reading more about conservative and, and libertarian principles, and I started changing my mind on a lot of these issues. And the, the, the great thing is that now I work for an organization that promotes American values called Our America. Um, I want to, you know, make sure that every person has the same equal opportunity that it was afforded to me as a, a, as a person who came from virtually nothing. So what do you think is different about you that you were able, because it sounds like maybe you heard these things in school, maybe you were taught these things in curriculum, uh, and then you started to think how, you know, how is this different? And I can relate to what you're saying. I'm a lot older than you are, but I was a Democrat until 1988, and then I I caught a speech on C-SPAN uh, by Newt Gingrich, and I was like, okay, this guy makes some sense. If I've been wrong about this, what else have I been wrong about? I started reading and discerning and critically thinking and doing all the things you're supposed to learn how to do, and I came to my conservative values uh, because of that and and have been a conservative and working in conservative politics ever since. Sounds like you had a similar kind of thing where you were taught one thing, uh, you picked up one thing, and then you started thinking, wait a minute, maybe I'm wrong about this. I mean, you, you, exactly. But the one thing I would add a, a, a little caveat to that is the fact that it, it wasn't just like one thing. You know, you ca- you pick up a lot of different things from a lot of different places. As I mentioned, I started off doing some immigration, like uh, from activism from the liberal perspective. But then, like, say, for example, like in, in seventh grade, I had a, a teacher who was supposed to be teaching us biology, but who just take the opportunity to, to just decry God. And, and anybody who thought that God existed was a stupid person. Of course, his children weren't stupid because they were atheists, you know, or in ninth grade when, you know, um, this is before critical race theory really made it in a, the, the really uh, forceful, like, it, it started being recognized as critical race theory, but I remember reading about school shooters, and, and basically they were saying that they were school shooters were white, and this is in an English class in the ninth grade. You know, a lot of different little things that I picked up. By the time I was I was part of the Antifa movement, I was already preconditioned to hate what I thought America was stood for. You know, and then the same thing applies to when I started becoming more on the uh, the liberty side, which is that I started reading about um, uh, free market economists such as Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell. I mean, I, I, I would listen to some speeches by by um, then presidential candidate Ron Paul and then just like a lot, a little place from like everything. Not that I agree with everything that Milton or, or Thomas Sowell have to say, same with like Ron Paul, but it's just, you know, you start creating your own identity. And, and I surely realized that the government gets in the way and we shouldn't really re- rely on it for, for most things. We really have to rely on, on in the individual to really do anything in society. So let's fast forward to today in the column that you wrote, which I just thought was was great because it pointed out this data that you need to know related to violent crime. So tell us about this column and then the message from this column. No, yeah, precisely. You know, one of the things that that was shocking, especially right now, we're talking about the gun violence, and but as the crime rate has gone up, that is in impacting minority communities much worse than and than others. And I think there is there is a case to be made that if you want to reduce, um, you know, if you want to give children, particularly children, we're talking about like actual children, not like not even like teenagers, just like children, a fighting shot at at, at success. Well, you know, they got to be alive. 
and you do that by protecting them. Now, uh, reducing crime protects basically everybody, you know, because everybody can be the victim of a crime. But when you have statistics that show you that they're affecting one group more than another, you really have to take pause and ask yourself, well, why is that? Well, one of the reasons why is because, unfortunately, within minority communities, it tends to be a higher crime rate. And and not to speak anything that that has to do with race, but more to do so with culture and, like, with as well as with... Um, with the resources that, unfortunately, um, some of these communities get. You know, we're looking at Detroit, we're looking at, at Baltimore and at D.C., like some of these places um, where there is a lack of, of police officers. And it, it's sad because it's interesting. The data shows that if you add one police officer within a given jurisdiction, that reduces the crime rate by, by the homicide rate by 0.1 persons. That means that if you add 10 to 70 police officers within any police department, you are likely to reduce or to save one life. I mean, that's a pretty good statistic, but uh, it's interesting because that's just having them be there in hot spots. When you actually adopt community policing, when you start in having a police officer engage with the community, you know, solving low-level crime, then you have violent crime just overall significantly drop. And, and, you know, this benefits everybody, but especially we would see a, a drop in homicides for uh, within the minority communities. So you point out Pew Research Center, which can't be called a conservative organization. Uh, they say that violent crime disproportionately harms minority youth and that black victims accounted for 46 percent of all gun deaths among teens and children and that 84 percent of gun deaths involving black children were homicides. Uh, and you go on to use the example of what recently happened in New York City, where there was a perpetrator that was arrested but not not was released while they were awaiting trial, and that within thirty hours he had committed more crimes. Yeah, and I mean that just goes to show you how like the quote unquote bail reform laws don't work. I mean New York had this great idea that uh, for certain crimes you weren't going to be able to. Um, hold the people with uh, on bail. They were just going to be released back into society, and the judges couldn't do anything about it. They just had to release the, the, the suspects. And you had all of these other people who, as soon as they were uh, released, they were uh, committing crimes. I mean, one of the things that ha- happened in California particularly was um, they were going to adopt a zero-bail policy which for certain crimes, there was not going to be any bail required and people were going to be let go. But then the, it showed that those people who were released on, on zero bail, well, they were three times more likely to commit a, more, a violent crime upon being released. But the New York one example, I think, is the most uh, gruesome. He was released and within 24 hours, he killed two people in two different independent homicides. I mean, you know, like, you have to do something about this, and you have to hold people, violent people, behind bars. You can't just let them go. So I think what's really important about uh, what you wrote is that you, you say in your final paragraph, it's essential to recognize that crime is a complex issue that requires a multifaceted approach. Some reforms may take months to implement and it may take longer to see the fruits of those reforms. That's the most important line in this whole thing. Because it's like we want this instant gratification. And it it's, it, you know, I don't know. You're not probably not old enough to remember when New York was a mess like this 40 years ago. And, and a mess like it is today. It's like we don't learn the lesson. And what happened was uh, Pres- uh, Mayor Giuliani came along 
and started community policing and getting police officers out of the cars and hiring more police officers. And in about a 10-year period, New York City went from a place you wouldn't go to a place where there were families with strollers in Times Square, you know, with a chocolate shop and a Disney theater, okay? I mean, it was it was a transformational change, but it took time for that to happen. And what you're saying is, in the short term, we need to keep violent criminals behind bars, increase police budgets, and hire more police officers, but it may take a long term to get the real results we want. Yeah, and you know, the, the interesting thing is, is it's typically not the, not, it doesn't take long to see what happens when you go the opposite way. I mean, you had a lot of police departments <laughs> slash right. the police budgets um, in, back in 2020 and 2021, and then you have in San Francisco, the same um, uh, public official who was, who fought hard to slash the police budgets, begging for more, more police officers within her, her district. You know, you have people like seeing like, oh, snap, it took less than a year to really see the crime rate jump to this to this extreme. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate very much you being with us today. There are, I mean, so many things we could talk about. Tell us again, if people want to see more of what you're doing or find out more about your organization, how can they do that? Sure. I mean, people can just check us out at joinouramerica.org. That's joinouramerica.org. Or they can follow me on Twitter at OG Nadalis. O-G-N-A-D-A-L-E-S. And that, Gabe Nadalis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Congressman Andrew Clyde with me today to talk about these really important issues. Andrew, thanks so much for being with me today. Well, good morning, Martha. Always good to be with you. So let's talk about the debt ceiling first before we get to the border, because there's so much to talk about on both of these issues. Um, the, the, the Congress did what Democrats didn't think they could do. They were able to cobble together their their coalition, their caucus, and get a debt limit deal passed. For months, the Schumer and the president have been saying, show us your plan. You showed them the plan, and now they don't know what to do. Well, you're exactly correct. Uh, you know, they were expecting that we would not be able to do anything and they would push us to the very end and then they would get a, they call it a clean, I call it a blind debt ceiling increase because this is truly blind when you, when is all you do is increase a debt and continue to do that year after year after year. You have no idea where you're taking the country other than into financial but, ruin. But Andrew, by the way, we have never done just a clean debt ceiling increase. We've never done that. It's always had other things. And even Patricia Murphy wrote in her column today that you cannot just raise the debt and then have the spending continuing to be barreling down the pike that's in there. What is in your deal that you passed makes a lot of sense. You get rid of COVID money that you haven't that you haven't spent yet. Hey, I would say we need to do that up and down the government. We need to go through every department and money that's been allocated but not spent needs to come out of the budget. Oh, that's and that's exactly what we did on this particular debt ceiling. We responsibly addressed the debt ceiling here, Martha. I mean, when you look at the COVID money that 
has been stripped out of it when you look at the fact that the $71 billion has been retracted from the 87,000 IRS agents, so that won't happen. When you look at $465 billion, uh, when we killed the, um, the student loan program, I mean, these things are genuine, real cuts to future spending, and that's exactly what we need to do to put this country back on a path toward a balanced budget, and that's the whole focus of this responsibly spending taxpayer dollars, not irresponsibly. Now, under, this- I understand there will be a meeting. I believe the date is May the 9th. Um, you know, an emergency in Washington always takes a week, I guess, is what it is. Um, so they're going to be meeting. Um, I, th- You know, I got to tell you, I'm surprised because I was not the biggest Kevin McCarthy fan, as you knew. Um, I was concerned about a California Republican leading us, but I think he did an amazing job in negotiating within the caucus. He had a very tight majority. He had to deal with a lot of different kind of Republicans, and he was able to get this deal through, which I think represents not just right-wing issues, which I don't even know what right wing is. You hear that term thrown around, but it's a fiscally conservative package that does increase the debt it serves both of the purposes well you know this all goes back to the speaker fight in january when you know we came to an agreement with kevin mccarthy uh, on specific financial principles and this is part of that he's holding to his agreement and i love that i love an emp- to see a an empowered speaker and one who is is showing financial responsibility I mean, two things that he has said for the last two years since I've been there is that our greatest external threat is China. Our greatest internal threat is uh, an increasing, wildly increasing debt. And so we're like, okay, you know, let's address that debt. And that's what we're doing with this bill, with the Limit Save Grow Act. So tell us, um, do you think, I mean, I think it's going to pass ultimately. I think they'll be hand wringing until about the 20th of May. And then the Democrats are going to want to go home for Memorial Day and they'll get something passed. That's what I think well, is going to happen. This is the only plan that's out there. The Democrats don't have a plan. The president doesn't have a plan. The Senate doesn't have one. You know, this is the right plan. The Senate Republicans are all supporting this plan as well. So I think this is the plan we need to go with. Because it is responsibly addressing the debt ceiling and it is cutting woke, weaponized and wasteful spending out of our government. And that's where we need to go with this. So the other huge issue, um, you know, I had a, a couple of pastors in here last week that said every week in their congregations they are dealing with having to drug overdoses problems related to people coming across the border in their communities right here in north georgia and um we've got major issues with what's happening with the border we've got a press secretary that got in front of the press corps and said that immigration illegal immigration is down 90 percent i don't know where she got that number and when she got challenged on it yesterday she you know she said people were being dramatic and uh bottom line is according to the 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 border patrol uh six and a half million people have come across in the last three years uh that is unsustainable what's going to happen at the border well what jean pierre said was a shameless lie and 
this administration is simply delusional to think that uh, illegal immigration is down 90 percent. No, you know, they have a new program. It's basically they're creating amnesty and it's called, um, you know, it's a program, a parole program. And that's just simply unacceptable and inexcusable. It does a disservice uh, to American citizens to literally bring illegals across and say, oh, there's no illegal immigration anymore. We're just paroling everybody instead. You know, you see drug overdoses dramatically increasing, and the worst of it is fentanyl. You had had um, 1,400 pounds of fentanyl coming across. Uh, I mean, an increase of 25% this month or March from February. And if you see how many people drug overdoses is killing every solitary year, it's incredible. 107,000 in 2021. This is a national crisis. And the Biden administration is turning a blind eye to it. Well, I mean, and bottom line is, to your point about the debt and China, China makes the parts that go into making the fentanyl. They get it to Mexico, and the cartels use it to make the fentanyl. So we've got to shut this border down, and then we have got to figure out how we're going to deal with all the people that are already here. It is a huge problem, and nobody, I, you know, the Republicans want to work on it, but nobody else does. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, and this month, we are going to address that with H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act of 2023. We're going to force President Biden to restart the border wall. We're going to uh, end catch and release. We're going to end the his abuse of executive authority on immigration. And, you know, we're going to increase support for the border. And these are just things that are common sense issues to deal with the crisis at the southern border. I mean, we this is unsustainable. Like you said, the number of children that are coming across um, the southern border. The unaccompanied alien children is dramatically increasing. The number of the amount of fentanyl this year is going to be twice, literally, what we were last year. And it's putting this nation in danger, tremendous danger. And, and that message has to be communicated to the American people. And the lies that the Biden administration is putting out uh, through the press secretary is, is inexcusable. And honestly, it's a tremendous disservice to the American people. Congressman Clyde, if people need to get in touch with you, how can they do that? They can go to our website at Clyde.house.gov. They can sign up for our newsletter, which um, uh, is a a great way to follow what we're doing every week. And then also you can uh, follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and on Getter at Rep. Clyde. So, Martha, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak to the folks of the night. And I want to have you back on when you have a little bit more time because we need to have an in-depth discussion about guns because we're getting a lot of questions from listeners and there's nobody, I think, in the Congress that understands more (laughs) the ins and outs of the laws related to it than you do. So when when you get some time where you can spend 30 minutes with us, we'd like to like just I've got I really want to get this discussion going. Sure, that'd be great. I've got a bill that's going to come up, I think, the 23rd of May, and that bill is going to um, eliminate the HF's rule on the pistol brace. So that's coming to the House floor. It'll be my third bill that has come to the House floor this year, and I'm uh, looking forward to a, another passage of a, of a strong bill that, that uh, defends our liberty. Absolutely. Andrew Clyde, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Martha. 
To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller. 